everybody. Welcome back to Ask an Addiction Specialist. I'm Bob Weathers, and I'm happy for you to be joining us this week. <clears throat> As we've uh, uh, discussed in the last several meetings, I want to encourage you to join me in dialogue today as we cover a new topic, and that can include your uh, using the chat function uh, 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 through the, through the uh, Facebook group uh, that you've joined us with or any other access point, YouTube and others. I really encourage your active uh, engagement with me. We'll have three exercises today that will also invite your engagement. And uh, I love hearing from you. And it, uh, as, as I've been asking for this, more of you have been writing and responding. And I love to engage with you in real time. It creates much more of a kind of a classroom experience for all of us. So I really invite you uh, uh, to join in. Also, uh, in, in, in uh, kind of living and learning as we go, uh, as we did last week, I'll be responding to questions <clears throat> anonymously. So I won't be naming uh, you. If you send this in, uh, if you send in a question, just know that I'm doing that out of respect to your privacy. And that may invite more uh, transparency too. So uh, feel free to join me. Really appreciate that. Uh, an item of curiosity for me and for my co-producers, Austin Armstrong and Franz Salvatierra. We're always curious where you're listening from. So even if you just send a quick thing to say that you're listening in from Fort Worth, Texas, that would be wonderful. So <clears throat> invite your presence in whatever way you feel comfortable or feel led to, okay? We've been discussing uh, in the last few weeks, and we'll continue today, looking at shame as an emotion that's very uh, significant, especially for those, I think it's significant for all of us, but uh, it, it has special significance to those who are in recovery from addiction because it's such a barrier to, to sustained and successful recovery. And uh, I think before we begin today, what I'd like to do, is, is, out of respect to the topic, which itself can be um, bring up a lot for all of us. I'd like just to introduce about a two-minute meditation. It's a mindfulness meditation here at the very beginning and ask you to join join with me. And I'll tell you why I'm doing this. Uh, I'm offering it uh, to you all. Uh, I'm offering it to you all uh, for, you, for your benefit and also for my benefit too. I want to deepen into this material today with you. And so I invite you to join me. This is a, a, a brief practice that you may already be doing something like your, this yourself, but it doesn't hurt to spend a couple minutes just relaxing and focusing. And I noticed that we have somebody who's joining us from Seattle, Washington. Thank you for joining us. And I invite others to share where you're joining us as well. So let's meditate Seattle, Washington and Costa Mesa, California, and all the rest of us that are, are here present today, okay? I'm gonna close my eyes just to help me focus. It's a simple mindfulness of the breath, and it goes like this. Take in a deep breath, and release that when you're ready, just in your own timing. Another breath in. Hold that and release that again when you feel ready to. On the next breath in, follow the breath through your nostrils all the way down into your belly. Breathing in. Breathing out. Notice if you can the rising and falling of your stomach, of your belly with the next in-breath. The rising as you breathe in, the falling as you breathe out. 
Now for a couple of more breath cycles only, I want to ask you to see if you can focus just on the sensations of the breathing and set on a shelf, so to speak, any thoughts or feelings that might arise or other sensations and just see what you can do to focus in just on the breathing. Breathing in, And breathing out. If a thought arises or a feeling, simply make note of it. I just go thinking, thinking, feeling, feeling, whatever it is, without even getting into the content, and then reroute your attention to your breath. So breathing in, breathing out. One more breath cycle and we're finished. Breathing in, focus just on the sensations of the breathing and release. Thank you. <clears throat> I think particularly when we're examining topics that have a lot of heaviness to them at times, such as shame, it can be very helpful just to uh, drop into a place where there's more capacity to hold and be with um, these uh, darker emotions. <clears throat> and uh, I'm hoping this exercise helps to set the tone like it did for me. Last week we looked at shame from five different perspectives and made some suggestions of what to do about shame. In light of those five different perspectives, I invite you to go back and review that presentation if you weren't able to be present. And if you were and have uh, the availability to go back and review it just for the sake of, of practice, it could be a good thing to, to uh, review the material, to rehearse it, to get it inside. Uh, these archives are available in multiple forms. They're available on this uh, Facebook site of Ask an Addiction Specialist. They're also available on YouTube. <clears throat> encourage you to uh, explore at will. We've, we've done around 20 podcasts here in this series and we've covered a range of topics and I feel like there's a lot there for you to examine. I also want to encourage you, if you do explore these, to write comments <clears throat> uh, right on the Facebook page or right in YouTube and or you can reach out to me. I'll be giving my uh, website address at the end of our presentation today. You can write to me directly and I'll respond to all inquiries. I'm very interested in interacting with you. It helps me to hone this material. It's personal material for me because I'm in my own recovery from addiction as are many of my listeners today. And uh, I'd love to interact with you and engage in dialogue. So last week, shame from five different perspectives. And as I announced at the very tail end of last week, today we're gonna to be looking at tracing the psychological roots of shame. <clears throat> and as I said before, as we go through this, submit any questions if something's not clear, and I'll do my very best to clarify here in real time with us, okay? So let's start by quickly defining shame as we've discussed it uh, in prior episodes. We've talked about shame as, uh, from a psychological perspective, looking at it kind of two sides of the same coin, uh, that shame represents a threat to my social acceptance. And what that means is that there's a risk of my getting kicked out of a valued group, whether it's my family or other loved ones, <clears throat> anybody that's uh, important to me, uh, the threat of being kicked out will kick up shame. 
And the flip side of that is any threat to my self-esteem will manifest also in terms of shame. And in fact, these two are, are related. And as you can see in this diagram, I have arrows pointing between them because they inform one another. So for example, if I'm feeling bad about myself, it actually increases the risk of my being ejected from my, my uh, reference group, those that I value the most. It, uh, it, uh, uh, most people don't wanna be with somebody when they're in the dumps, especially around self-esteem. And so it unfortunately creates a vicious cycle. So my, my uh, impaired self-esteem or feeling bad about myself leads people to reject me and their rejection actually further lowers uh, uh, or diminishes my self-esteem. So that gets us into the zone of shame. And then we've talked about shame in a way that's, I think, very clarifying as we've made a distinction here for our purposes between shame and guilt. <clears throat> they are related emotions, but they're not identical. And, and specifically the way that we're using them is that shame, uh, excuse me, guilt comes on the heels of my having done something bad or wrong, where I've harmed somebody else. Uh, even if unintentionally, when it comes to my intention, that feeling that arises for having done something wrong, we call guilt. I've referred to it here as rightful guilt, only because I think that this guilt can inform us in terms of not repeating the same offense. And without that, we don't have any barometer for adjusting our behavior. So, so guilt, uh, as I see it, is uh, valid and even essential, really necessary for us to live uh, as social human beings. When guilt crosses over though into toxic shame, that's another matter. And we've talked about shame as representing not that I've done something bad, but that I am something bad. <clears throat> I wanna share with you all this last week when I was reviewing and preparing for today's podcast, I actually was thinking of changing that word. Uh, shame, I, I have here as I am something bad. And I thought about changing to that to I am someone bad. And so I sat there for a moment and I thought, no, I think I'm going to leave it as thing, something bad. And you can see now uh, in, in the PowerPoint slide here, I've underlined it. And in my notes, it's italicized. It doesn't look like it's italicized up there. For whatever reason, the italics didn't translate. So imagine italics around something, just to draw attention to the word thing. What this led me to think of was the next slide has to do with a Jewish theologian, Martin Buber, who had a word to say about something and why I chose this word. Martin Buber, you can look him up online. He was a significant uh, figure in the 20th century in Jewish thought, and in fact, was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, had a lot of impact. Uh, uh, in, in, the, uh, in Judaism in the 20th century. His most famous book is called I and Thou. And you can actually look up I and Thou in Wikipedia. I did that today, in fact. And there's a whole uh, description of this book, uh, uh, the, the, the central concepts of the book. And I'm gonna summarize one part of it. I think it's a core part of the book right here today and apply it to shame is Martin Buber makes a distinction between two different kinds of relationships. One is an I-thou relationship. I see a comment has come in and I'll get to this in just a minute. An I-thou relationship is where I view you as sacred. That would be Mar uh, Martin Buber's perspective on it, is that every living being uh, is viewed as being a gift, as being um, a gift from God. 
in his perspective. It reminds me just now of Mother Teresa when she would look at look into the eyes of lepers in the streets of Calcutta. And for her, she saw, in her words, she saw Christ in the eyes of every person that she looked at. And what she meant by that is something very similar to what Martin Buber is saying here from a Jewish perspective, which is that there's something sacred in every being. And we all know what it's like to have somebody look at us and, and uh, relate to us with this kind of richness, with this kind of depth of vision. He contrasts this with an I-it relationship, and that's where someone looks at us not as a thou, but as an object, as an it. And we all know what that feels like. Think for an example, uh, for example, of someone that you love who looks at you with so-called dead eyes, the, the feeling that comes with that. Think what it's like, think what it feels like, remember what it feels like to have someone look at you as a utility, as a useful object rather than as a subject, as a human being with a heart and a soul and a mind. So this distinction that Martin Buber makes is the very same distinction that I think leads me to stay with shame as I am something bad because I, with shame I become a thing and I can become a thing to somebody else who shames me I think the worst of it around shame, and certainly I have uh, this in my own experience, is where I become a thing to myself. So to use Buber's uh, terminology, it's where I turn from an I-thou relationship to myself, seeing myself with compassion, for example, and I begin to see myself as an it, as an object, as a thing. And so I think that shame in this way thingifies us, if I can make that phrase. Someone has written in that they've learned so much from me and uh, from our presentations here, and thank you. appreciate that. That's really what we're talking about, isn't it? It's like an I-thou response. I thank you for that. We all flourish or have the potential of flourishing in the presence of I-thou uh, relationship. There's a very famous psychoanalyst uh, in psychoanalysis. He's famous outside of that. Very few people know his name, but Heinz Kohut. He's one of the more significant psychoanalysts of the 20th century, in fact, and he talked about how every one of us wants to be the gleam in our mother's eye. And I think that also gets close, at what, close to what Buber's talking about here in terms of an I-thou relationship. There's another comment that's come in. I'll take a look here real quickly. Oh, this is somebody who's studying uh, to get their degree uh, in human services to work with substance abuse, and they say they want to learn all they can. Well, I'm grateful for you to join us and honored that you would join us. And I hope that, that what we're talking about here today and in this podcast series may be of use to you and that you can apply it to your program. I encourage you. Uh, one of the things that Austin and Franz have done is they've also put online the PowerPoint presentations, uh, the PowerPoint slides themselves that go with the podcast presentations. And you're welcome to review these and utilize these in uh, any class that you're in for sure. Um, I'd be very uh, honored for you to do that. So I'm glad to be of service to you as you're uh, joining us today. So there it is then. Shame it's us. Turns us into a thing. Now if we move on to look at shame in terms of its psychological origins, we've kind of laid out what shame is and, and, and where it leaves us. One of the tricky things about shame is it's extremely hard to identify. I'll give an example from my own uh, training experience. I remember being 
uh, in undergraduate, uh, my uh, uh, undergraduate degree was in psychology, and then I went on to a PhD program in uh, clinical psychology. And I can remember in the early years, uh, particularly of the of the psychology uh, program, and this is at a graduate level. I remember writing papers uh, in and around the topic of shame, and understanding it at some level, kind of abstractly, but really not identifying with it. And it's curious to me in hindsight, but I think that that, uh, if uh, you may have some version of this, I'll tell you, I've done, done a lot of work over 30 or 40 years now of clinical work with clients, most of whom don't come in identifying themselves as struggling with shame or low self-esteem. Some do, some do, but many don't. And it emerges in our conversations uh, that, that it's a major factor in their lives. So why is it so hard to identify? Why was it so hard for me to identify? I could write papers about it in graduate school, but that's very different than really feeling like that it had something to do uh, with me, especially at a very deep or a core level. So I have a couple thoughts here around shame. One is that shame, it, its origins are pre-verbal. That is to say, and I'll say more about this, is that our experiences in our development uh, right from the very beginning can lay down the foundations for shame and that those foundations are laid down before we even have words to describe it. So in this sense, you can think of shame as, as being more of an embodied, uh, uh, a felt sense than actually being verbal. So it's pre-verbal in origin. That's part of what makes shame hard to get a hold of because the verbal mind in our memory, which is so attached to thoughts and ideas and words, can hardly access it. So that's a part of what makes shame slippery. Uh, there's another part of it that I want to touch on, and I think that this is as important, if not more so, is that shame is so dadgum pervasive. And what do I mean by pervasive? There's a joke, and you guys uh, may have, might have heard this before, about somebody coming up and asking a goldfish, How the, how's the water? How's the water in your bowl there, Mr. Goldfish? And, and uh, the goldfish looks at the observer and says, what the heck is water? <laughs> and I think that in some ways we're like goldfish in a in a bowl of water. Is that if you've lived in a in a it, not all of us have, but if you've grown up in an environment that was negating of you, uh, uh, negating of your value, that in the language of Martin Buber treated you more as an it than a thou. It's hard not to internalize that. We internalize that pre-verbally, as I've said before. So it's, it's the foundation for later words and thoughts, for sure. So it's kind of the unspoken foundation. Uh, one author calls it the unthought known. You can't think of it, but you know it. And so it's there from the very beginning. And it's so, uh, so much of, of what we eat, sleep, and drink that it, that it is so pervasive that we don't, we can't even identify it any more than a goldfish can necessarily identify the water that it swims in. So if this is the case, if shame is hard to identify, then how the heck do we, how the heck do we ever get a handle on it? And I'm going to suggest that one of the ways that shame reveals itself, uh, sadly, but um, maybe many of you watching this can relate to this either directly or indirectly through loved ones. Shame will reveal itself when, when we ourselves or someone that we, loves, we love, when someone hits bottom. 
Uh, I draw on, on the 12-step programs for this, their use of this phrase, hitting bottom. That is when the bottom drops out in our lives. And so I've got my own experience of that. You may have your own experience of this as well. Uh, this is certainly nearly universal in the context of addiction. Most people get into recovery only when they've hit bottom, when they've lost so much that there's no way uh, out but up. And, uh, uh, and it can be in that place of hitting bottom that shame actually reveals itself for the first time in terms of feelings uh, about ourselves that disqualify us, that, um, that judge us, that condemn us, that turn, uh, in the case of addiction, that turn my addiction into who I am. And so it isn't that I've been addicted and done things that are bad, it's that I am bad. And whether I'm addicted or not, there's no hope for me. And so the 12 step programs talk, think, talk about hitting bottom. I look at that not only behaviorally in terms of behaviors that have led to uh, catastrophic consequence, but also think of that in terms of the internal world, the feelings, the self perceptions that go with that. So hitting bottom for me represents this place of, of uh, all defenses against my shame being uh, squashed and uh, discarded. They're no longer available to me. So I want to ask you to join me in an exercise right now. And I'm also going to invite you to share to, to whatever extent you're willing your thoughts online here. I realize this is extremely private. And so I will, uh, will hold with what I said earlier in terms of holding to anonymity. Um, uh, but I want to at least invite us to consider, I'm going to give us a start here with an exercise that you can that you can come back to after today's podcast. You can also review this podcast, as I said, you can review it uh, shortly after our presentation today. It will go up on YouTube as well as uh, this website uh, where you can review this and give it some more consideration. But I'd like to ask you to pull out a piece of paper or if you're sitting at a computer or a tablet to uh, uh, bring up a, a blank note or blank sheet. And I want to ask you to reflect for just a minute now, uh, and you can go in, into more depth later. Uh, when was a time where you hit bottom? Where there was such huge loss, could be loss of job, loss of relationship, loss of reputation, any way that losses has uh, been revealed to you in your own life. And how was it in that experience that you felt shame? Maybe in the spirit of our conversation, maybe in a new way, maybe at a, at a, new, at a new depth. So asking you to link in your own experience when you've hit bottom and how shame manifested uh, in that hitting bottom. So take a minute right now just to write a few notes. If you care to share, I invite you to, because I can draw that into our conversation if you're willing to, to share with me.
I think if you'd asked me this question earlier in my life, before about 10 years ago, I think I would have had a hard time answering it. And uh, my particular trajectory around addiction is statistically unusual insofar as I became full-on addicted in midlife. For many people, including many of the people I work with here locally, it came much earlier. But I certainly could answer it and can answer it now. And most of the clients I work with who are uh, themselves in recovery from severe addiction uh, can all answer this too. I see a comments come in. Let me take a look at this. That's a good question. Let me just ponder it for a second. The question is, is there anything of value uh, regarding shame? Uh, are there some kernels of wisdom or truth in shame? And uh, I'm going to answer you by, by moving forward in the presentation because I think it's absolutely true. I'll speak personally in answer to your question. It's a great question. Is there value in our encountering shame revealed at the bottom of the well? And I know that for me, it's been a game changer for, for me in my life. And let me, let me speak into that a bit as we proceed forward. And, uh, uh, and, and as I share, I want to uh, ask this, this individual to share further uh, uh, insights or questions that might arise. I'll tell you how shame manifested for me in terms of my situation. When I hit the when I hit bottom, the question I got from the outside, and there were there were plenty of individuals from the outside who asked this question. I think the the killer for me was that it was me asking myself the same question, and probably asking myself this question with even less mercy than the those inquisitors from the outside. And the question went something like this. Here's the next slide. How could you? How could you do that? And this is the question I asked myself. How could I do this? How could you do that? And I think when that's voiced in, in terms of a shaming um, tone, especially towards myself, it's really not looking or interested in any answer. And so shame at its worst would just shut down further inquiry. I should just crawl into a hole and die, right? Now, in fact, and this gets back to the question about what value there might be in the shame. The shame was so painful that it impelled me to go deeper into it, to try to find something underneath it. It was an incredibly difficult, excruciating time in my own life. But out of that work, which includes some combination of my own therapy I think it was critical for me to have a therapist to discuss this with. Also my involvement in support groups, including 12-step support groups and other groups. And my entire recovery process, which included a number of practices, including meditation and active journaling, led me to inquire into whence cometh this shame and how could I do what I had done in regards to addiction and what followed on addiction. And what came to me, I'm going to simplify into three different parts right now. And it is a simplification, but it captures a lot of what it is that came to me that underlies uh, 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 
the behaviors that are so easy to judge or the person who did them, who shame would only ever condemn. <clears throat> the first thing that, that came to me, this isn't in order, but one thing that came to me that was important was realizing that there was a lot of work I had done uh, owing to my own uh, profession as a clinical psychologist and having been in therapy for years and been in supervision for years and having studied psychology and spirituality in depth for decades, I had all of that that I could bring to bear. It wasn't that I hadn't done my work, but there was a certain level of work that I hadn't done, or there was a certain, there was a ceiling that I had not gone beyond that was gonna be required of me. And that if I wasn't gonna do that work, it was gonna, it was gonna come back to bite me, and, and it did. And so uh, in terms of my personal story, without going into the details, uh, the specifics here, I can tell you there's enough psychological trauma around emotional and other forms of abandonment and abuse that at some point around our early midlife, uh, uh, I began to self-medicate. I began to self-medicate. It started with alcohol. I think it was there in other forms of other addictions, but it began to become more of a problem with alcohol and soon enough uh, generalized to other drugs in addition to alcohol. And it effectively put a cap on my doing the work with the trauma, particularly for me around grief that had never been grieved, had ever, never been felt, never been experienced. I put a cap on that and uh, the addiction helped to serve to kind of numb out that pain or to anesthetize that. There was another piece, and you'll see this in what I've outlined here. I write grief trauma, and then I have underneath this disconnection. What do I mean by that? Is that there was enough traumatic material that I had never really engaged with consciously or deeply enough or vulnerably enough that it then manifested in terms of my central relationships and that I... I kept choosing for relationships, especially core relationships in adulthood, that were not adequately nourishing. And so ironically, if I come from, or you come from a background of relational abandonment or abuse or neglect, that, that the poor get poorer, and that was really me, is I kept choosing for relationships that were not adequately nourishing. And so the healing that in many ways would be afforded by healthy relationship was what I didn't choose for. It's not to say I didn't have good relationships, but I still suffered from making some very poor choices in relationships that, that didn't feed or nourish me, certainly did not lead to healing. And so that became part of the problem as well, is that I needed not only to anesthetize, or I chose to anesthetize, if choice is operative here, I chose to anesthetize uh, the early trauma that was still roiling around inside of me, and more immediately what I was aware of is I chose to numb out from pain in my current relationships, which themselves in some ways were replications of what I'd grown up with. And so you get this kind of vicious cycle of at least for me, these three elements playing out together that led me further and further into addiction. It builds on itself and then led me to make even um, more and more uh, painful, uh, uh, I think misguided, uh, choices. I, and when I say misguided, they were guided to, uh, to alleviate pain, but they didn't really succeed in doing that and actually led to creating more pain. 
I'm going to say more about this in just a moment as I talk about shame and lifelong patterns. But this at least gives us an idea of how could you do something? Well, here's how I could do it. <clears throat> By not working through material for whatever reasons that was coming back to really hamstring me, having that show up in current relationships and finding myself in a situation where the only way I could manage the anxiety, the depression and other feelings was to self-medicate. That's how I could do that. Uh, let me look at the question here. Uh, this individual asks, how do you get rid of shame or heal from shame? I want to say that you stick with me here. <laughs> okay, <laughs> stick with us because we're this whole series is building, uh, I'll build into every episode including today's episode, means for healing from shame. I don't think that there's a single bullet. I think shame is too complex a phenomenon to respond to a, a single solution. But every time that we meet here, we'll be discussing solutions. Today, I think to understand its deep roots and to acknowledge that we may not even be aware of our shame is a start because awareness is half the battle, in my opinion, to healing it. You can't heal something that you're not aware of. Uh, I also believe, so I believe that good information makes a difference. I also believe that, that it's already implied in what I just said a moment ago. I think that shame, uh, because it's an interpersonal emotion, shame comes out of our disappointing others, our being rejected by others, our disappointing ourselves, our rejecting ourselves, is that the healing of shame itself then will have to also be mediated interpersonally. I think it's next to impossible to heal shame in a vacuum. Psychology calls it co-regulation. And so I think that our conversation today, these resources that you're exploring, even your journaling right now, are ways of connecting to yourself as, was, as well as connecting to me. And as we connect to one another that in a healing way, in a healthy way, in a non-toxic way, that, that over time also is part of the healing of shame. It's implied also in what I said is I really think that it helps to work with people that are very skilled in addressing shame. So therapists, Recovery coaches, that's what I do. People that are skilled in, in um, addressing the specifics of what is broken inside of us in a way that can facilitate healing. I, I fully advocate working with specialists because uh, honest to goodness, I think most of us have enough issues around this that without, without specifically skilled help, it's very difficult to deal with it. I think it requires our committing ourselves to the practices that I'll continue to explore here with you in this in this setting, as well as seeking support from, from people that are skilled in dealing with this. And I think counselors, therapists, um, uh, coaches are a good place to, to start as well. Uh, this is a question that will go throughout all of our presentations because it is the million dollar question, how do we heal this? This individual also asks about embarrassment and shame. And I see embarrassment and shame. I, I've read a lot in the shame literature, and sometimes there's a lot of distinction made between these two. I'll tell you, when I talk to the groups that I meet with every week addressing shame, I'm working with individuals who are seeking recovery from addiction on a weekly basis, and also see individual clients in recovery coaching. I think that oftentimes the way that people will uh, express shame is about feeling a profound embarrassment. I had an experience uh, earlier today where I began to feel my body tingle and I realized it was embarrassment. And I think the embarrassment phrase attached 
to shame, is, to, is attached to shame. So I see them on a continuum. And I want to acknowledge that if you read deeply into the, the psychology of shame in that literature, you'll find distinctions made uh, that may also be useful. But I'm, I'm going to look at shame and embarrassment in the same neck of the woods for our sake today. For that matter, guilt is, even though I'd like to make a distinction between guilt and shame for sure. Thank you for your question. I appreciate it. And we'll continue to explore how we heal from shame as we discuss shame. I think part of it is to clarify who shame is, what it is in our lives. So let's look at shame and lifelong patterns. What I found when I began to explore my own uh, life, including the bitter shame that I was experiencing, the incapacitating shame I was experiencing on the heels of having hit bottom where I lost so much, particularly professionally, I began to understand at a new level what I had had some handle on before, but never really fully grasped. And that is that a lot of my behaviors were attempted antidotes to shame. A lot of my behaviors, next slide, a lot of my behaviors were antidotes to the shame that I experienced across my life. And I'm going to give you a couple examples today that may resonate for you as well. Uh, one antidote is what psychology refers to as pathological accommodation. It's a big couple of words. And if it helps to understand what psychology means by this, it, it's what we do when we turn ourselves into a pretzel. That is, we bend ourselves to obtain or secure love from others. And owing to my own background, uh, with limitations for sure in terms of, of the provision of attention and and uh, positive attention and love is that I learned how to accommodate myself to try to wrangle love out of the environment. And I carried that pattern as we oftentimes do from childhood. I carried that pattern into my adult relationships. I presented this material in the last few weeks at the local treatment center. And one of the clients, appreciate the appreciate this said we're going to start calling you pretzel bob <laughs> they call me dr bob there and so the very next week when i came in he said hello pretzel bob i i think it have if if the shoe fits right i think it applies here and i'm working through my own pretzel uh, pretzelness or pathological accommodation and the term simply means this when i accommodate myself to get love uh uh it becomes pathological to the extent that I'm not expressing who I really am. I'm really, I'm really contorting myself to meet what I imagine you find lovable. And I put a lot of energy into this project. So that was one of my attempted antidotes to shame. The second one uh, that really stands out for me is referred to in the literature as unrelenting standards. Uh, sometimes this is referred to in terms of perfectionism. And, uh, and I'm going to call it being a star, is that I found that if I could be a star, that I could, get, I could get positive attention that way. The problem with that is I kind of painted myself into a corner. The only way that I felt like I could get love was to be a star, to be always on, always excelling. And what are the long-term results of these two strategies, of being a pretzel and of being a star? I can tell you two for myself. Uh, the first long-term consequence of, of my unsuccessful antidotes to shame was I grew increasingly resentful. For example, to the extent that I was giving up myself in relationships in order to earn love, you have to remember I'm not lovable as I am. That's the basis of shame, where I'm really, uh, I'm something bad, something wrong, something 
off about me. So if you're going to love me, I'm going to have to meld myself into what you want. And it's hard to do that for very long and not get more and more angry or resentful about what you're giving up, which is your own voice, which is what I did. So that's one of the long-term consequences. The second one for me was just sheer exhaustion. And I can particularly name this in, in response to my, my uh, imposing on myself having to be a star, uh, the unrelenting standards, is that I held myself to such high criteria, much higher than I held other people. I tended to be much more gracious towards everybody else in my life than myself. And there's no way to sustain that. There's no, it's, it's, it's not sustainable. And I became increasingly exhausted. So that combination of resentment and exhaustion was lethal in my case, because what I found is that one of the ways I could get off that roller coaster or that merry-go-round was to, was to alter consciousness through drugs. So when I ask you for this next piece, another just a minute long exercise to start with here, can you identify for yourself patterns in your life that you developed? I've named two for myself that really are central. If you can relate to these two, great. This is a chance to write down your own thoughts about it. Or if you're aware of other patterns where for whatever reason you've employed a strategy over the course of your life to mitigate against shame as an antidote to shame, write that down right now. Give yourself a minute to reflect on patterns that sometimes have been identified by others. This is a way that we're all goldfish. Sometimes it takes other people to identify the water. We don't see it ourselves. So any patterns, I've named two for myself. Pathological accommodation, yes. Unrelenting standards, absolutely. How about for you? Any lifelong patterns that you're aware of uh, in relationship to how you've attempted to manage shame in your life? I invite you also to share if you if you're willing to share other strategies or you're uh, possibly resonating with the two that I've shared here now there's a problem with these strategies <clears throat> And I've already talked about the long-term results of the strategies that I employed and how they were related not only to my attempts to manage shame, but also directly related to my increasing reliance on addictive substances in order to managing, in order for me to suppress the resentment that was arising, in order for me to get off the, the, uh, the, the endless cycle of being a star and the exhaustion that came with that. You can see why I wanted to get high or why I wanted to numb out. And perhaps you can relate to that. If not in yourself, then in a loved one. The earlier question about how we heal from shame, I think one of the central pieces, and in fact, in some ways, I feel like it is the central piece, is beginning to develop an empathy or compassion towards the addicted self. What, what is it that leads to this? And it won't do to just simply put our hands on our hips and go, how could you? In other words, how can we drop into a place of curiosity? And as I say, compassion. 
the addiction didn't start by accident. It eventually gets maintained by its own chemistry. For those of us that have been addicted to substances, soon enough you're caught in the chemistry of addiction. But generally it starts off with psychological roots, many of which relate to developmental trauma from very early in life that has never received the kind of support that it needs to heal. And so we do the best we can to heal it, so to speak, by virtue of our addictions. <clears throat> now, the problem with this is that it's short-sighted and it's easy to say that right now, but not so easy when you're in the throes of addiction. Think about this for a second. If shame communicates to us that there's a fundamental lack in us, that we're fundamentally unlovable, there's no amount of addictive behaviors that's going to, that's going to fill that lack or that, uh, or, or, or that's going to, that's going to substitute for that unlovable equation that we have in ourselves, uh, long-term. It won't work as a question that's come in. Uh, this individual, thank you for sharing. This individual said that, uh, they identify with the two strategies I mentioned being a pretzel and being a star. Um, my condolences and I also feels good to share have somebody share in this with me uh, by the way in terms of healing from addictions one of the connections is is that we support one another in just validating our experience so it, it, it actually is helpful to know that there's someone else out there who can identify with these uh, twin demons in my own life and this individual adds another strategy was isolation yeah so important to be able to identify these strategies. And so whether it's turning yourself into a pretzel or being a star or isolating, if I isolate, if I just move away, uh, I, I don't have to feel these feelings. Um, attachment theory, which is a, uh, 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 kind of the reigning theory in a lot of psychology and psychotherapy right now, talks about a certain kind of attachment, refers to it as dismissive attachment, which is characterized by isolation where rather than feeling a feeling, I'll isolate. And you know, one of the things that comes up for me in my work, and I certainly know this personally, is that active addiction is isolating. Uh, when I bring up this topic in the rooms, when I'm speaking to groups of, of individuals seeking recovery from addiction, it's well my universal that every one of them associates their addiction, particularly its active phase, with, with being isolated, where you can be with others, but you're really alone with others in your addiction. And so I think that really does fit, uh, uh, not only as a strategy to manage shame, but also that addiction supplies that isolation. It helps me to distance from myself. It did for me in terms of my own feelings of, of uh, limitation, of lack. It also helps to uh, create a, uh, a buffer between me and others if I imagine or actually experience others as shaming me. So thank you for sharing uh, another strategy. And the fact is, is that our addictions uh, help us short-term, but not long-term. I wanna guide you to a resource online. This is Johan Harry, who's uh, uh, from the UK. He's a author um, and, uh, and a speaker that is incredibly charismatic to my mind. I want to reference you to YouTube to go uh, view um, uh, Johan Harry's uh, uh, TED Talks, one of which addresses uh, uh, 
directly what we're talking about today. Johan Harry says this, he says, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. You think about it and typically I'm either addicted or I'm sober, right? He says the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. He goes on to say, it is connection. <clears throat> And so in reference to the last comment or, uh, uh, about isolation as a strategy, <clears throat> and if I think about what happened to me once I got so resentful about bending myself into a pretzel and so fatigued from trying so hard, running so fast to try to get people to love me, <clears throat> is that what I was left with was disconnection. And if you remember the earlier slide where I talked about my answer to how could you, Bob, was that, well, you know, how I could do this would be to have trauma that's never been sorted out, never grieved, uh, the disconnection that follows uh, in relationships because I got this unfinished business that's showing up in every relationship and the addiction which attempts to medicate all of that is that I became increasingly disconnected uh, uh, and uh, my addiction became the vehicle for that disconnection more and more. And so I think that Johann Harry is right here, is that yes, sobriety is important. And, and yet he's saying the opposite of addiction is connection. It's a radical statement he's making. This gets right to the core of that question that was asked earlier about what heals shame? Well, in this uh, context, we can say that connection heals shame. If, can, if shame is by definition the threat to social acceptance, that you're going to reject me, that others are going to kick me out of the group, then the opposite of that would be to not be kicked out, would be to be socially accepted, would be to be connected. So I want to ask you a question uh, in our final exercise of today, and we'll just take a minute for this, and then we're going to wind up for today. And that is, what can you do? What can I do? other than continue with addictive behaviors, what can I do that represents authentic healing of shame? Not ignoring of it, not sweeping it under the carpet, not trying to forget it, but to heal it. What can I do, what can you do in the direction of connection today this week, during this time, and take a moment to write this down. I think it makes a big difference to actually write down what it is that you're willing to commit to that's in the direction of healing shame via connection. We've talked today about tracing the psychological roots of shame <clears throat> with the goal of finding out what we can do to heal uh, ways that, that our development has gone awry. And for many of us, it goes back to even pre-verbal development. So the very foundations of our senses of self are rooted in 
feeling defective, feeling wrong, feeling bad about ourselves. And as I said, that for many of us, that awareness of, of, of that feeling of shame arises when we hit bottom. And all of a sudden, there you are faced with it. <clears throat> and what we're suggesting here at the, the end of our presentation is that reconnecting in healthy ways is a huge stride towards healing the shame that would otherwise paralyze us and isolate us. <clears throat> I want to share with you, it occurred to me as I was thinking of answering this exercise right now, is that in the mornings when I get up for my quiet time, the last part of what I do in my, my quiet time each morning is that I list gratitudes in my life. And I go through um, an extensive uh, list uh, for at least five minutes of things I'm grateful for today. And a significant piece of that has to do with my relationships. And I'll tell you what I do, and you can adapt this for yourself if you're interested, find it really useful and it feels so darn good, is that I'll think of who I'm going to, who I love, who loves me, and specifically who I'm going to be engaging with today. And I look towards the day, I do this first thing in the morning, I look across the day to see who I'm going to be engaging with in loving, supportive ways so as to affirm connection, even as I prepare to move into the day. It feels so good to me to lay the foundations for anticipating a series of interactions through the day with people that I feel like are going to be good for me, or to put it in the language I used earlier, for relationships that are going to be nourishing me today. And God willing, me, me those relationships as well, that I'd be nourishing there, that it's quite mutual. In fact, that's kind of the definition of a healthy relationship, where we're mutually nourishing one another. And so it occurred to me, in terms of what it is I want to do today, is that I'm doing it, <laughs> including being with you all right now. And, and the day's not over yet. <laughs> and tomorrow, sometime in the wee hours of the morning, you can sit with me wherever you are and, and recite in your own mind, what does the day look like in terms of connection? And, and to put it in the language of shame today, it's, it's relationships that are authentic and transforming in regards to shame. These are relationships that are affirming of who I am, that build strength in me, that build confidence in me, that uh, give me a spark in my eye and a lift in my step. And so, that's, uh, that's a secret of what I do today and what I'll be doing tomorrow morning. As we wind up for today, are there any final questions? I encourage you to submit those in the next moments. And as, as I'm waiting for any final questions, let me point you towards next week's presentation. Next week is, uh, is an important week to me. I've been invited by the, uh, a local group of professionals, marriage and family therapists, to present, to present um, uh, uh, a summary of the work that I'm doing, particularly in my work with uh, uh, those who are in recovery from addiction. And I intend to present this not at arm's length, but I'll be presenting this as also my story. And so it'll be me presenting as a, a, as a, a psychologist who lost his license owing to the ill effects of addiction, presenting the work that I do with others who have also lost majorly in their lives and my my hoping to support th both them and me in healing from shame in order to create the the basis 
for sustained and successful recovery. I'll be presenting the next Friday. And what I'd like to do in our meeting next week is present to you, <laughs> you get first dibs on this, present to you what I'll be presenting on Friday. And so I'll be addressing to this group as I'll be bringing back to you all next week. Uh, the presentation will be addressing addiction, shame, relationships, and recovery. I'll introduce it further when we talk next week, but I hope that you'll come back and uh, uh, join me. And it will be uh, a week of preparing for what for me will be the first presentation to a group of peer professionals like this since I lost my license in psychology nearly 10 years ago. And so I feel really honored to be invited by this group. I'll, it'll be hosted by the president of this organization. She'll be interviewing me and I'll be presenting uh, the outline of that presentation when we meet next week. There's one final uh, comment here that talks about changes of attitudes uh, uh, through mindfulness. One of the real resources in the, in the literature of mindfulness is uh, John Kabat-Zinn uh, fr from Harvard. He's one of the real leaders in the field. There are three universities in the United States that have done so much work around bringing mindfulness as, as it might apply to addiction. Harvard University, John Kabat-Zinn is, is uh, a major leader there. It's K-A-B-A-T-Z-I-N-N. You can look him up online and, and uh, find lots of resources there. There's Richard Davidson at the University of Wisconsin uh, in Madison. And there's uh, uh, the Mindfulness Awareness Research Center at UCLA uh, associated with Dr. Daniel Siegel. And I re re uh, recommend all three of those as resources. And you can look into John Kabat-Zinn's work, in, including his uh, 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 reviewing nine different attitudes that arise as a function of mindfulness. Gratitude and, and self-forgiveness or self-compassion being two of those. Thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate your involvement, your engagement very much. So I want to recommend, as I said before, that you write in any comments or questions after this presentation. Any thoughts, you're welcome to write to uh, this, this website or to YouTube. Uh, the videos will be on YouTube. You're also welcome to write me directly at my website. That resource is up here. It's www.drbobweathers.com. And I recommend that you uh, uh, write me there. There's a place you can send me your comments or questions and I'll be sure to respond to you um, in, the next, uh, in the next few hours after you write me, okay? Thank you so much for joining us today. I look forward to seeing you next week. I wish you a blessed and unshamed week.